Cheerleading is big in Texas. In fact, it's so big, in 1991, Wanda Holloway did the unthinkable to make sure her daughter made the cheerleading squad. She hired a hitman. If you enjoy these episodes and want to hear more stories about female felon psychology, motivations, and atrocities, follow Female Criminals. Episodes are released every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Poet L. Smith once wrote, All the forces on this planet will never beat that of a mother's love. And it's a difficult sentiment to argue against. Even in the world of female criminals, the love of a mother can lead to extraordinary acts of violence. For example, during World War II, Leonardo Cianciulli's eldest son was set to join the Italian army. The thought terrified Leonardo, and she vowed to do everything in her power to protect him. She eventually decided that the only way to save her son was to offer the universe human sacrifices. Leonardo drugged three unsuspecting neighbors who had come to her for help. She then used an axe to kill each woman and hack the bodies to pieces. Once they were dead, she needed a way to dispose of the bodies. So right there in her kitchen, she broke the corpses down, turning them into soap and tea cakes, all for the love of her favorite son. In 1993, Ellie Nessler's young son was set to testify against his alleged molester, 35-year-old camp counselor Daniel Mark Driver. But Ellie wasn't going to let that happen. In the middle of the courtroom, she drew her gun and shot Driver several times in the head and neck, killing him. In the aftermath, Ellie was seen as either a hero or a dangerous vigilante, but mostly she's remembered as a fiercely protective mother. Separated by oceans and decades, these two very different women teach us one important lesson. Never underestimate what a mother is willing to do for her child. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief, did you picture a woman? 
we didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today we're covering Wanda Holloway. In 1991, she hatched a plot to have the mother of her teenage daughter's cheerleading rival killed. This week, we'll take a look at Wanda's childhood, her relationship with her daughter, Shanna, and how her hometown of Channelview, Texas, may have shaped her intense ambitions. Next week, we'll delve into the murder-for-hire plot, the media storm it stirred up, and how it affected everyone involved. As its name suggests, Channelview, Texas is a town dominated by a wide shipping canal. On either side of the brown, muddy water of the Houston Ship Channel, the land lies flat and unrippled. Little more rises above the trees than chimney stacks or the occasional water tower. Along this low-slung topography, shipping containers float through the town atop carriers, creating a landscape that appears to shift the closer you get to the river. These ships bring something else to this hamlet east of downtown Houston, industry. In 1916, oil was discovered in the area, which led to the construction of oil refineries. Towards the second half of the 20th century, the town's dominant employment opportunities were factory jobs. By 1954, when Wanda Holloway was born, the career options around Channelview were limited. The men mostly worked in chemical plants. Women took on more traditional roles. In that vein, Wanda's father, Clyde Webb, worked as a tester at a concrete plant. Her mother, Verna, stayed home with the children. The family, like many of Channelview's residents, were missionary Baptists. Clyde's strict devotion to the church gave him a moral code with little room for deviation, but that had its benefits. It taught him to prize Christian morals and hard work above all else. Clyde instilled similar values in his children. On Clyde's insistence, the family attended the local Baptist church three times a week, until, that is, he had a falling out with the leaders of the congregation. Clyde didn't think that members of the opposite sex should be allowed to swim together. When this archaic belief was challenged by church leaders, the Webb patriarch took his family and a splinter group of others to establish a new missionary Baptist church. In this way, Clyde demonstrated to Wanda and her siblings that when things didn't go your way, you were allowed to get a little creative with the rules. However, Wanda's days weren't entirely consumed with the machinations at the local church. As she grew up, her hometown was also coming of age. With a growing population, there was a greater demand for the town to socialize together. In Channelview, there were fewer forms of entertainment more esteemed than high school football. For a boy, earning a place on the team cemented his status as a local deity. 
For girls like Wanda, one of the highest aspirations during the school year was to play a supporting role in the football team's story. By either twirling batons or performing as cheerleaders during games, they too could bathe in the community's undivided attention for at least a couple hours a week. While we don't know much about Wanda's adolescence, those who knew her best said she nursed a desire to join her high school's drill team. Since the squad of girls always took to the football field to march at halftime, it's understandable why she might have wanted to partake in the festivities. Unfortunately, Clyde saw her ambition as a complete non-starter. In his opinion, the skirts the girls wore as part of their uniform were entirely too short. With her dream of participating on the drill team squashed, Wanda remained on the sidelines for the rest of her high school years. Before we continue with Wanda's psychology, I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to those who knew her, Wanda always craved acceptance and wanted people to like her. To that end, she sought to belong to the most beloved social group she could find, the drill team. In a 2011 article published in Current Directions in Psychological Science, researchers pointed out that social acceptance and the need for lasting and meaningful relationships lives at the heart of a person's core. While much of Wanda's belief system was formed by her faith and her parents' restrictions, she couldn't seem to shake the indomitable craving for acceptance from her friends. And in the absence of that, she'd settle for the acceptance of a boyfriend. Namely, Tony Harper, a high school senior. Tony's family lived close by. Like Wanda's family, they were middle class, but the Harpers were better off financially. This potentially inspired some of Wanda's interest in Tony. Dr. Seth J. Gillahan from the University of Pennsylvania covers the concept of money wounds. These are, according to author Ken Honda, a kind of injury concerning money that many people have carried since childhood. In this vein, Wanda possibly had two money wounds. The first was growing up in a lower-income area like Channelview. The second was her controlling father. While there's no indication Wanda went without the essentials, it's possible that she was denied some things that she really wanted. We know her father objected to the drill team uniform. Maybe Wanda wasn't allowed to wear other things she thought were fashionable, but her father found too risque. As a result, Wanda's thoughts might have turned towards finding a new situation for herself, something that would help her climb the next rung on the social ladder. And perhaps Wanda felt that a new family could help her get there. The Harpers weren't blue-collar like most of Channel View's population. Instead, they owned businesses. Tony's father, R.E., owned a gas station and convenience store. His mother, Peggy, operated her own boutique lingerie store. She also drove a Cadillac and accessorized with diamond rings. To a teenage girl in the early 1970s, these accoutrements of wealth likely acted as a siren song. Wanda heard its call and perhaps without realizing it, began to steer her ship towards financial stability. She would have Tony and the comforts his family enjoyed perilous rocks be damned. When Wanda began dating Tony, it didn't take long for their flirty chats to become more serious. Early on, marriage was already an option. But in a Baptist town like Channelview, 
Post-high school weddings were a common occurrence, so nobody was surprised when, two weeks after she graduated in 1972, 18-year-old Wanda wed her high school sweetheart. Just 13 months after the ceremony, the couple welcomed their first child, a boy they called Anthony Shane. Despite this happy addition, there were already cracks in the relationship. At weekly family dinners with Clyde and Verna, Wanda showed a deference to her father's opinion that was infuriating to Tony. In addition to dealing with the overbearing presence of her father, Tony was also saddled with a wife who showed little interest in sex. According to Tony, Wanda seemed to have a repressed nature in regards to her sexuality. Tony, still in his early 20s, considered his wife's attitudes towards sex a massive problem. So he spoke to Wanda's gynecologist. The doctor suggested that the couple conceive again, theorizing that a woman's hormones change after a second child. The doctor hoped that would perhaps address Wanda's lack of libido. Though her doctor believed Wanda's problem with sex was caused by her hormones, it seems more likely that it was a product of her religious upbringing. In a 2016 study titled The Impact of Religious Commitment on Women's Sexual Self-Esteem, researchers found that women with high religious commitment held more conservative sexual attitudes. The study also showed that low sexual self-esteem could manifest in an inhibited ability to enjoy sex. While we can't be sure of exactly what caused Wanda's disinterest in sex, she knew it was causing trouble in her marriage, so she sought advice from Tony's mother, Peggy. In an interesting turn of events, Peggy revealed that she had also disliked sex as a young woman. She thought that seeing a psychiatrist would help Wanda overcome the barriers to more intimacy with her husband. According to Peggy, Wanda balked at the idea it's possible she didn't like the thought of sharing her intimate life with a stranger, so the suggestion was dismissed. Dismissing her chance to deal with the root cause of her intimacy issues was likely a mistake. When Shanna Harper was born in 1977, it seemed to have little effect on 23-year-old Wanda's interest in the marital bed. Tony wasn't too bothered, after all, by the time Wanda gave birth for the second time, he had already found sexual fulfillment outside of his wife. When Wanda discovered her husband's extramarital affair, she reportedly threatened Tony's mistress with a gun. Tony calmed his wife down, but when he arrived home later, all of his clothes had been neatly folded and placed in boxes in the garage. In addition, the locks to their home had been changed, at that, Tony realized that Wanda had effectively declared the end of their marriage. In 1980, the divorce was finalized. 26-year-old Wanda kept the house and won full custody of their two children. Tony was allowed weekend visits twice a month, leaving the bulk of the parenting to Wanda. Fortunately, Wanda thrived at being a single parent, her mother, Verna, helped out with the kids when she could, allowing Wanda to dust off the secretarial skills she'd learned in high school. Earning her own money and being the one to decide how it was spent was a new experience for Wanda, one she relished. Growing up, she'd always presented herself well. Now, with her own money to spend, she had the ability to pay particular attention to her appearance. Wanda became meticulous in coordinating outfits and ensuring her hair and nails were a source of pride. 
But it wasn't just her own appearance that Wanda controlled. Young Shanna soon reflected her mother's fixation with appearances, too. The girl constantly stepped out of the house with beautifully maintained curls and freshly laundered dresses. In other words, Shanna became her mother's miniature. While she grew into a proper young lady, Wanda encouraged Shane to be an athletic young man. When Shane joined a local Little League team, Wanda made sure she and Shanna were always there to cheer him on. She even volunteered her daughter to join the mini cheerleading group that appeared at the games. It's here that Wanda began to show which parts of her more conservative father's views had taken hold. She was repelled by the thought of sex, yes, but Clyde's views about cheerleaders, what they stood for, and their uniforms didn't seem to bother Wanda at all. In fact, Shanna's first toddler-sized steps into the world of cheerleading were just the beginning of Wanda's obsession with the sport. Coming up, Wanda's quest for a better life finally takes her away from Channel View. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now, back to the story. In 1980, 26-year-old Wanda Holloway was a newly single mother raising two young children. Though she'd easily found work as a secretary, she wasn't as financially stable as she had been with her ex-husband, Tony Harper. But that difficulty was easily dealt with. Not long after her divorce was finalized, Wanda began dating Gordon Englehart, co-owner of a company that supplied the booming oil industry. 44-year-old Gordon was impressively wealthy. He was older than Wanda, but handsome. Adding to his positive traits, Gordon liked taking Wanda to fancy restaurants. The only major problem was that he lived 80 miles east of Channelview in Beaumont. Perhaps to make the drive less of a hardship, Gordon gifted his sweetheart with a brand new Mazda RX-7. Though they'd been dating less than a year, maybe this generous gift helped sweeten Wanda to the idea of a second marriage. Whatever the reason, soon after in 1981, 27-year-old Wanda married Gordon. After their wedding, Wanda packed up her things, her children, and prepared to leave Channelview. Once in Beaumont, 
The 27-year-old adjusted quickly to a role she'd previously enjoyed during her first marriage, that of a suburban stay-at-home mom. Her new husband was wealthy enough that Wanda didn't need to pursue employment. Instead, she was able to devote more time to her children. She was also able to enjoy the fine jewelry and clothing allowance, which Gordon lavished her. As a result, Wanda's new life outside of Channelview was largely blissful. But Wanda wasn't destined to stay away from her hometown for long. Less than two years into her second marriage, the oil business took a hit. Gordon's business suffered terribly, and he found himself in financial distress. Around the same time, Gordon's elderly mother moved in with them. Here again, Wanda's plans had been fouled, and that was unacceptable. Perhaps she saw Gordon's reversal of fortune as a betrayal of sorts. Whatever the reason, Wanda began secretly planning to leave. Behind Gordon's back, she arranged for Shane and Shanna to transfer back into their Channelview school. When Gordon finally caught wind of her plans, she flatly told him that the marriage wasn't working. It seemed that Wanda had a selective interpretation of her vows. She would stay with Gordon for better, for richer, and only with the express promise that his mother maintain her distance. In the absence of that, Wanda wouldn't wait for death to part them. She opted for divorce. Though he was blindsided, Gordon didn't fight her. Instead, he watched as she took her diamonds, bundled her children into the Mazda he bought her, and drove all the way back home. Wanda was ready to start afresh. 29-year-old Wanda's fresh start included a new house. In 1983, using the money she'd made from the sale of her first home, she bought herself a brick house in one of Channelview's nicer subdivisions. Though the yards were largely plain and the homes relatively small, the neighborhood was about as opulent as Channelview could be, which suited Wanda just fine. Upon settling in, she enrolled her children in Channelview Christian Academy. There, she hoped they'd enjoy a more immersive religious education to complement their attendance at their weekly Baptist services. Beyond school, the children worked hard at their extracurriculars. Shane played several sports and was a member of the school band. Like his sister, he also took piano lessons. This being Texas in the 1980s, Shanna stuck to more traditionally gendered activities like dance and gymnastics. In 1995, Professor Tom W. Rice from the University of Iowa and Diane L. Coates from the University of Vermont published an article looking at the evolution of gender roles in the southern United States. Their research revealed that people in the South were more likely to hold conservative views when it came to gender. Rice and Coates suggested that the Southern Belle myth played a large role in shaping the social view of women in states like Texas. Despite Channelview's lower socioeconomic makeup, they had similar expectations about the types of roles their little girls would assume. In this regard, at least, Wanda emulated her neighbors. She enrolled her daughter in dance and gymnastics, no questions asked. Another traditional concept Wanda was fond of was the close relationship between mother and daughter. Though she loved her son, Wanda considered her daughter a best friend. 
As such, attending Shanna's activities seems to have been a higher priority for her, whether enjoying a dance routine or clenching her fists with nerves as she watched her little girl drill gymnastics maneuvers, Wanda was loath to miss a single minute. It was during these long hours spent watching over her daughter's athletic pursuits that Wanda met Verna Heath. Verna's daughter, Amber, was the same age as Shanna, and the two girls had similar interests. Since the two mothers existed in a similar orbit, they became, if not friends, then at least helpful acquaintances. Both mothers wanted the very best for their children, and that meant juggling their own responsibilities with the commitments of their daughters. Verna was close by to help with the carpool when Wanda had to be at work early, and similarly, Wanda lent a hand when Verna's fourth child was born. In addition to making new friends, 32-year-old Wanda also started searching for husband number three. In 1986, C.D. Holloway became the new object of her affection. The pair met at church. C.D. was the choir master, and Wanda was his organist. Like Wanda's second husband, C.D. owned a successful company involved in the Texas oil business. Not only was he a man of industry, C.D. also came from money. Every member of his family drove Lincoln town cars. It was practically a tradition, one that Wanda was no doubt eager to partake in. In addition, while Gordon's finances had been easily rocked, C.D.'s wealth was more secure thanks to his family connections. This might have helped Wanda feel more secure in the relationship. C.D.'s finances might have also helped her overlook the fact that he was 20 years her senior. Whatever the reason, C.D. and Wanda got married the same year they met. Since it was his fourth marriage and her third, the wedding was an understated affair, neither of them feeling a need for much pomp and circumstance. After the nuptials, the couple was ready to begin their life together. According to friends, Wanda thought this meant moving out of Channel View and into the exclusive Houston neighborhood of Riverview. But fate conspired to once again keep Wanda firmly attached to her hometown. Instead of moving his new family to Houston, C.D. opted for the small-town familiarity of Channel View. As a result, instead of the glistening lights of the city, Wanda was going to have to make do with the occasional nighttime gas flare from oil refineries. Though she hadn't upgraded her living arrangements in quite the way she expected, Wanda still made the best of the situation. After all, she had a wealthy husband, a support network around her, and she didn't need to work. So once again, Wanda eschewed a career, choosing instead to focus on decorating her home, running her household, and expanding her and Shanna's wardrobes. With little else to distract her, Wanda had turned her attention to achieving a long-time goal, turning her daughter into a cheerleader. Given what we know about Wanda, it seems fair to call her a narcissistic parent. According to Dr. Joseph Burgo, a narcissistic parent is one who feels that he or she has not achieved what she wanted in their own life, something they interpret as a failure. Thus, by making their child into a winner, the parent is seeking to fulfill their own goals. Writing for Texas Monthly in 1991, Mimi Schwartz observed that in Channelview, most parents learned to keep their modest dreams in check, knowing that the likelihood of them coming true was slim. These dreams, so often unfulfilled, would be passed along to their children with the knowledge that they might never be achieved. 
But Wanda, who had already reached for and achieved more than many Channel View natives dared to consider, wasn't content to let her aspirations stop with her. Just because she was never on the drill team didn't mean her daughter had to suffer the same fate. In fact, Wanda would do anything to make sure that Shanna succeeded where she hadn't. Up next, Wanda's quest turns into an obsession. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. In the late 1980s, Wanda Holloway was a woman on a mission. She had already achieved financial stability with her marriage to her third husband, C.D. Holloway. Now that she had her more superficial comforts finally taken care of, she could focus entirely on her daughter, Shanna. Like many young girls growing up in the South, Shanna had been taking dance and gymnastics classes. Now, with middle school tryouts nearing, Wanda began to get more serious about her daughter's cheerleading prospects. Not content to simply watch Shanna from the sidelines, she decided to get more hands-on. Verna Heath, whose daughter Amber was in the same gymnastics class as Shanna, noticed that Wanda seemed to have a particular fascination with Amber's progress. She would use Amber as a benchmark for her own daughter's abilities. Standing to the side of the floor, Wanda would watch both girls, then ask their coach why Shanna was falling behind. Whatever the coach's response, Wanda wasn't satisfied. To make sure Shanna kept improving, Wanda set up a stage in the family garage, with mirrors and lighting positioned just so Shanna had everything she needed to practice. And Wanda made sure she did just that. Even Shanna's homework took a back seat to the practice sessions. Things got to a point where Wanda would sometimes finish her daughter's assignments just to give her more time to perfect her technique. But Wanda likely believed that all of the extra work would be worth it. Cheerleading success was just around the corner, even if it required some unorthodox measures. In 1988, at the end of fifth grade, 11-year-old Shanna had to say goodbye to her friends at Channel View Christian Academy. This was because in order to be eligible for the 7th grade cheerleading squad at Alice Johnson Middle School, girls had to try out in 6th grade. So if Wanda wanted Shanna to have her shot at the squad, she had to switch schools. Amber Heath, on the other hand, stayed behind at Channel View Christian. To Wanda, this meant that Shanna's biggest competition was no longer in the running. However, halfway through the school year, Verna Heath approached Alice Johnson Middle School to let them know that her daughter would be joining the seventh grade intake the following fall. Because she was in line to be a part of the student body, the school agreed that it was only fair that Amber be allowed to try out with the rest of the girls in March. Though this wasn't how Wanda had planned things, she didn't let it concern her. After all, her father had taught her that hard work paid off, and no one had worked harder for this than Shanna. But unfortunately for Wanda, 
cheerleader tryouts weren't decided on hard work and talent alone. Here's how the tryouts for cheerleaders worked in Channelview. The group of hopeful girls would audition in front of a panel of college cheerleaders and the entire Alice Johnson student body. Then the panel would select six standouts from the general tryouts, and this is where things got messy. Instead of the panel also choosing the cheerleading squad from amongst the six finalists, the winners were decided by popular vote. To that end, the six tryout finalists were encouraged to spend time in the halls of their middle school campaigning for votes from their peers. In essence, the ultimate outcome of the cheerleader tryouts came down to a popularity contest. To Wanda Holloway, securing her daughter's place on the team might have been her way of ensuring that Shanna was an automatic part of the in-crowd for the rest of her life. This was something Wanda herself had never achieved. But just as she longed to be popular in high school, Wanda projected those same hopes onto her daughter. She wanted Shanna to be popular. She wanted her to be liked. However, a study conducted by Dr. Mitch Prinstein suggests that popularity and being liked don't always go hand in hand, especially in middle school. Dr. Princeton's study revealed that the students everyone knows as the popular kids were often disliked by their peers. Their looks, athletic ability, or membership to an exclusive cheerleading squad may have designated them as part of the in-crowd, but that didn't mean the student body actually liked those kids. Still, it seemed like nothing would dissuade Wanda from achieving this dream for her daughter. The competition was stiff, but she was up for the challenge. When the big day came, Wanda Holloway, Verna Heath, and many other mothers sat in the stands to watch their daughters perform for the school and judges. They carried encouraging signs and called out cheers of their own. When the tryouts were over, both Shanna and Amber were selected as finalists. Shanna hadn't performed as well as Amber, who was capable of more complicated tumbling exercises. But from here, everything came down to the results of the vote. This meant that it was anyone's game. The rules of the campaign allowed the girls and their parents to come to the school to pass out flyers and hang posters. Though she was the stronger competitor athletically, Amber and her mother weren't leaving anything to chance. To sweeten the odds in their favor, they decided to hand out Heath brand candy bars. Not only were the young teenage voters excited for a sugary hit between classes, Amber's name was built right into the packaging, Heath. On the day the votes were cast, the hopeful cheerleaders and their parents were invited to stay behind at Alice Johnson Middle School after the final bell. The ballots, cast on Scantron forms, were fed into a computer. Girls on the current squad were given the task of sharing the winning names with the rest of the group. Shanna, Amber, and their mothers waited anxiously in an empty classroom. Finally, the moment of truth was at hand. The cheerleaders walked in with two names to announce, and when all was said and done, Wanda's daughter didn't make the cut. Amber Heath did. To Shanna, that was okay, but for Wanda, it was a disaster. All of her hard work, her planning, all of the time sacrificed, had come to nothing. 
After stewing over the outcome of the tryouts, 34-year-old Wanda decided that it was simply unacceptable. First, she demanded to know the full results of the election. More specifically, how had Shanna fared in relation to the winner? For some reason, the school's principal indulged Wanda's obsession and told her that Shanna had come third, though it hadn't been close. That was all the information Wanda needed for step two of her plan. After hearing the results, she requested a private meeting with the Channelview school board. Behind closed doors, Wanda argued that the tryout process hadn't been fair. She'd studied the bylaws, which stated that two girls from Cobb Elementary, where Shanna was enrolled, would be selected to be in the squad. Amber didn't attend Cobb Elementary. In light of this, Wanda had a simple request. Allow the girl who had come in third place, her daughter, to join the cheerleading squad in addition to the two elected girls. Though the board agreed with Wanda's logic and theory, they opted not to grant her request. Who knows, perhaps granting too many girls the status of cheerleader would cause complete social anarchy in the small town. Whatever their reason, Shanna would not be joining the seventh-grade squad that coming fall. The school board did make one concession, though. Going forward, only students who were enrolled in the eligible elementary schools would be allowed to compete for spots on the squad. This was of little use to Wanda, and she left the meeting feeling furious. In Channelview, secret meetings were difficult to keep quiet, and it wasn't long before word had spread of Wanda's audience with the school board. The news didn't seem to surprise many. Around town, Wanda was known to be friendly and quiet, but people also reported that she seemed to feel that she was better than everyone around her. Perhaps it was the immaculate way she presented herself, or her habit of trading up on her husband's. Whatever the reason, Wanda had something of an image problem. To those around her, she had an embarrassment of riches, a beautifully furnished house, a doting husband, two loving children, but still she wanted more. And in the eyes of her community, that was her biggest flaw. Either Wanda was oblivious to what her neighbors thought of her, or perhaps she was impervious, Either way, it didn't matter what anyone else thought. She had one goal in mind, to turn her daughter into a cheerleader. In the past, when things hadn't gone her way, Wanda had opted to abandon the game altogether and start afresh. But this time, she was left with few options. If she wanted Shanna to be a cheerleader, she would have to stay at Alice Johnson Middle School and simply try out again the following year. Wanda decided that they would train harder, do better, and win that popular vote. There was no other choice. Next time, Wanda would win. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Wanda Holloway's story. We'll follow Wanda as she prepares her daughter to be a cheerleader and find out what happens when another woman stands in her way. For more information on Wanda Holloway, amongst the many sources we used, we found Mother Love, Deadly Love by Anne MacDonald Mayer and The Cheerleader Murder Plot by Mimi Schwartz, extremely helpful to our research. 
You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Jay Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Joel Callan, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.